hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. Stay tuned. We in law-abiding society who aren't criminals, who may not even know any criminals, should very much care about the criminal justice system because it's all being done in our name. We the people. The number of Americans behind bars exploded over the last 40 years. More than 3 million children under the age of 18 have a parent in prison. You see how much rehabilitation is not happening. I was even worse than when I first went in. And we have to do something about it. Everyone is talking about making a murderer in the trials of Stephen Avery. The trial of the man accused of the marathon bombing. I'm firmly opposed to the death penalty. Why do I support the death penalty? That's really the same debate that went on in the time of the rabbis. Uncover practical Today, ways. More than a dozen inmates graduated from the Operation Making a Change program. We can change lives and bring hope to those for whom it has been in short supply. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, welcome back to Sultus Salam Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today we are going to continue our discussion, Crime and Consequence, which is the Jewish Learning Institute course that I've been offering at our shul in Santon Central, as well as at Chabad House on Wednesday mornings and evenings. Yesterday we were very lucky to have several judges at the course, sharing with all those in attendance fascinating aspects as the law here in South Africa is and contrasting it with the Torah, the Jewish law, as it is taught in the Talmud and in this week's Torah portion, the portion of Mishpatim that deals with laws. My friends, today we are going to tackle a very interesting topic, a hot debate topic globally, and that is the use of the death penalty. Now, here in South Africa, the death penalty is not an implemented punishment, but it is abroad in certain countries. Where I come from in the United States, it's one of the only democracies that actually does have capital punishment, where someone can be executed for crimes committed. Now, a lot of people have different, diverse views on this topic. And in the Jewish context... You might think that you are familiar with the Torah's perspective, especially if you've been studying your Chumash this week. And therefore, what we're going to do today is take a deeper look at what Judaism has to say about capital punishment and what practical lessons it can actually teach us in the modern context. And I'm confident that if you stay tuned for the next 45 minutes, you will be surprised and learn some things that perhaps you weren't necessarily previously aware of. Now, ideally, I wanted to bring one of the judges or more as a panel into the studio to talk about it. But instead, I'm going to take a different angle and present to you, my dear listeners, two interesting cases, which you listen to the audio of them. And if you want, you could go to the website, myjli.com forward slash crime, where you could watch these videos and hear the stories and perhaps 
as I ask the questions related to these stories, you can shape your opinion. And indeed, if you want to share your perspective, feel free to send a WhatsApp here to the studio, 061-895-1019 or send an SMS to 34519. And I'll be happy to hear your perspective. And we could talk about the two cases that we're going to present, get your perspective and opinion on them, and then I will share with you what the Torah says. And of course, if you have any questions, feel free to send your message or even call into the studio and I'll be happy to discuss it with you. Now, of course, like I said, the death penalty is something that is still implemented abroad and so it's worthwhile from a discussion perspective to just hear the stories and see then how they shape your perspective and then getting into the Torah's perspective. So here we go. Today we're talking judge, jury, and execution, Judaism's perspective on the death penalty. Here's our first presentation. Stay tuned. It's a story of the Boston Marathon bombing. It was the 117th Boston Marathon, run every year on what's called Patriot's Day. Schools are out. Offices closed. On April 15th, 2013, The atmosphere at the Boston Marathon was typically festive. But at 2.49 p.m., there was a terrifying explosion. And 12 seconds later, yet another explosion, just 200 yards away. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Two explosions near the finish line just a short while ago. The result, three instant fatalities, over 260 wounded, many with horrific injuries and loss of limbs. Police are looking for any clue that can help them solve who was behind the blast. And days later, a breakthrough. Well, good morning, George. There's a growing sense of confidence here this morning. Based on the FBI's discovery of a clip of video, it appears to catch the moment when a man placed a bag with one of the bombs. After a very detailed analysis of photo, video, and other evidence, we are releasing photos of these two suspects. We consider them to be armed and extremely dangerous. No one should approach them. No one should attempt to apprehend them except law enforcement. The suspects were later identified as brothers, Johar and Tamerlan Sarnayev, originally from the Central Asian Republic of Kyrgyzstan. Rather than lying low, the suspects betrayed their whereabouts to law enforcement that same day by assassinating police officer Sean Collier before moving on. Next, the two men carjacked a Mercedes SUV and led police on a wild, violent chase through the streets of Cambridge into neighboring Watertown. We have reports that they have explosives here at the scene. There are explosives here at the scene. This is definitely hand grenades. Hand grenades and automatic gunfire. The older of the terrorists, Tamerlan, was severely wounded in a shootout with police. He was taken into custody, but by 1.35 a.m., he was dead. Several officers had been severely wounded as well one of whom later died of his wounds. Johar, however, evaded capture until David Hanaberry of Watertown looked out at his backyard and noticed something amiss with his boat. Closer scrutiny revealed a bloodied man lying in the boat. 
He frantically called 911. 911, Uh, Boston police are saying that the second bombing suspect is in custody. Bombing suspect captured after that police raid in Watertown. Finally, in March 2015, his trial began. Assistant U.S. Attorney William Weinreb described the bombing and its horrific aftermath. He painted Johar as a soldier in a holy war against Americans, whose motive was reaching paradise. Prosecutors called more than 90 witnesses, including bombing survivors who described losing limbs in the attack. The defense admitted that Johar had planted the second bomb on the sidewalk behind a group of children and was present at the subsequent shootings, but emphasized the influence that his older brother had on him. The prosecution insisted the brothers were equal participants in the attack. Johar himself expressed no remorse throughout the proceedings. Courtroom today, absolutely packed with survivors, family members of victims, some of them becoming tearful as they listen to the closing arguments from both sides. The prosecution reconjuring some of the most graphic and, and images and details that we've heard over the course of this trial before asking the jury to return a verdict of guilty on all 30 charges. Johar's trial was the most closely watched terrorism trial in the U.S. since the Oklahoma City bombing case two decades earlier. On April 8, 2015, a verdict was delivered. Breaking news here. This is the final count in the Boston Marathon bombing case. Count 30. Jahar Zarnayev guilty. That makes him guilty of 30 of 30 counts, 17 of which are eligible for the death penalty. The jury deciding the fate of Boston Marathon bomber Jahar Zarnayev has reached a verdict. They have sentenced him to death. Seven men and five women reached this decision after about 14 hours of deliberations and after finding Zarnayev guilty of all 30 charges against him. So that's our first case study, and that is the Boston Marathon bombing. When we get back, I'm open to your input about whether or not you believe this depraved terrorist deserves the death penalty as he was sentenced to by the U.S. court. We'll be right back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. And welcome back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivan. And today we're talking about judge, jury, and execution, the Jewish perspective on the death penalty and capital punishment, which is a theme in this week's Torah portion. Now, the first series you listened to here was the story of the Boston Marathon bombing. And a lot of people agreed that the death penalty was the only appropriate punishment. And in fact, that actually hasn't, he hasn't been executed a terrorist because the U.S. has a system of automatic appeals. Now, there's another video you can watch online. Again, the website is myjli.com forward slash crime. And there you could see another story, the story of Cameron Todd Willingham. In short, the story goes that a fire broke out in his home in 1991 and three of his children perished in that terrible fire. Sadly, the investigation proved that there must have been arson, and the father of those kids, Mr. 
Willingham was charged with murder of his own children. This was all based on circumstantial evidence, on oil spillage that they noticed, and it seemed like this was something intentionally done. Furthermore, when he was sitting in jail, besides for the arson evidence that was presented at his trial, there he was sitting in a, in a cell with another fellow who claimed that Mr. Wellingham confessed to killing his children, and that was used as further evidence against him. He was sentenced to death, he was executed, and shortly after his execution is when more details and evidence were discovered or were brought to the fore, and it seems that he wasn't guilty of arson, and basically the conclusion of the story is that he was executed on false evidence. And the question is, the possibility of error is a major argument against the use of death penalty. Now, of course, you have supporters of the death penalty who say, well, mistakes happen, but they're rare. And uh, while systems need to be improved, the benefits outweigh the problem. And therefore, if we judge it on case-by-case merits, then it is still a worthwhile argument to offer the, the death penalty. And of course, there's arguments for and against, and the basic arguments... Uh, for the death penalty is firstly, they believe that it's moral because it is, it is, these are bad, inherently bad people and the only way to serve them justice is by executing them. And of course there's an argument against that to say, who are we to take anyone's life and therefore it's unethical, it won't bring back the, the person, the victim, it won't, uh, it, the, the feelings of revenge, that's about it. And therefore, it's a tremendous argument. Of course, there are those that say, well, that the death penalty will deter murderers, while others argue that it doesn't. Then you have those who say the death penalty is the easiest and the cost-effective way of incapacitating and eliminating murderers, whereas others say that the costs, the legal costs, the defense team, the other aspects involved tells us that it doesn't necessarily save money, but even if that is an argument, one could say that the mistakes involved in executing and falsely executing somebody aren't worth it, whereas others will argue that it is very rare that that actually happens, and there's lots of other arguments for or against the death penalty. Here in South Africa, it has been abolished since the new independent government of the Rainbow Nation since 1995, I believe, there is no death penalty sentence in South Africa. But if you examine the death penalty, there are different opinions, and it's a very hot-button topic. It's very much debated, and you'll see many people for it and others against it. And in fact, if you take it back to last week's discussion, we could talk about what it fits into. What I want to get into today is the position of Torah, of Jewish law, very clearly in our Torah portion, seems to support the death penalty. If you look at the verse in our Parsha, in Exodus 21, verse 12, you'll see it says, Ma'ke if a person strikes another with a fatal blow, Mois, you must, he shall certainly be put to death. That is a clear verse in our Torah portion this week. And if you look at the commentator, the, the Sifri, that people might argue and say, well, how could we do so? Who are we to put someone to death? It seems immoral. It seems unethical. And by the way, that is not the only case. There are more cases. In fact, in the Torah, the Torah prescribes the death penalty to uh, various other 
various other transgressions, which are not for today's discussion, but the point is that death penalty exists within Torah law. And the commentators discuss this and say, don't argue, don't think this is insensitive and immoral, unethical. As the Sifri puts it, if a person should say that, well, someone's been killed, this is not going to bring someone else's life back. What are you gaining by killing another person for one person's life? And he quotes a verse much later on in Devarim and Deuteronomy. It says, You shall not have pity on a murderer, on a person who's taken someone else's life. Don't all of a sudden get compassionate and feel pity for them. So why does the Torah call for the death penalty? Well, last week we talked about this idea that a criminal, we should focus on the goal of rehabilitation. Where do we get How's a person rehabilitated if they are being executed? It's seemingly incompatible, completely incompatible with capital punishment, with the death penalty. I mean, where is there any chance of rehabilitation? Last week we argued against incarceration, against jailing someone because it is going to prevent them from fulfilling their mission and purpose in which God put them in this world. And that's why we recommended Ari Miklat, which is city of refuge where a person has autonomy, freedom to move around. Where do we get a benefit in any way by murder, by, uh, by executing them? So let us try to understand how can the Torah prescribe what is seemingly a very anti-rehabilitative punishment? And I would say even furthermore, if we discuss this idea about a person fulfilling their mission in this world, there's no way a person can continue to do so if they're no longer here, if they're executed. So that being the case, what is gained by execution? Why would the Torah offer that as a punishment in this week's Parsha? And the answer to this question is one where, as we previously discussed, as a religious system, the Torah deals with both our physical as well as our spiritual, our bodies and our souls. And the Torah's theory of rehabilitation is not limited just to the physical rehabilitation of a person, but there's also some kind of a spiritual soul rehabilitation. And therefore, according to the Torah, a person who committed such a severe sin, such as taking a life, or any of the others that are included in capital crimes, that person who's been convicted and sentenced to death by the based in, by the Jewish court, they lose their life mission in this world. They are no longer able to fulfill their mission here. They've lost that sense of purpose to exist in this world. And therefore, their physical life is considered beyond rehabilitation. But remember, I said only the physical life. Because nevertheless, the Torah still cures for that person's soul. And so the death penalty helps them achieve what we call spiritual rehabilitation. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of kapara, which means a atonement for this terrible sin. And it allows them to reach a place in Olam Abba, in the world to come. And for this reason, a convict, a person who's been convicted of murder or any of the other capital crimes, they are given an opportunity of tikkun of kapara, of expressing their remorse, of rectifying their sin, even though they will no longer be 
able to continue to live in this world. And that's where confession comes in and remorse. And if it's genuine and sincere and they confess what they've done wrong, as the Mishnah teaches, there's a famous Mishnah in Tractate Sanhedrin that tells us that a condemned person is given the opportunity to confess. And the Mishnah quotes a story of Achan, who in the times of Joshua had to be executed for taking loot from the city of Jericho, even though he was told not to do so. All the Jewish people were told not to do so. By the way, there's a very nice video online. If you watch, Rabbi Sam Thurgood gives a nice, beautiful talk on the stories of Tanakh. So you could Google that and watch the way he relates it, even to little kids, and you get that story. But the point is, within the religious worldview, the Weltanschauung of the Torah, capital punishment, the death penalty, is indeed moral. And it's indeed rehabilitative within the Torah's guidelines. But obviously, the rehabilitation is not for the body, only for the soul. And so, we are going to discuss how the death penalty works in the Torah because there are absolutely specific conditions on how it is implemented. But the murderer's life mission is over. It's irredeemable. His soul is only going to be rehabilitated by death penalty. As harsh as that seems, that is the Torah's perspective. And it's very clear in our Torah portion this week, in the portion of Mishpatim. Now based on this Many people believe that it's clear-cut that the Jewish position of the death penalty is black and white. Indeed, someone who commits a heinous crime such as murder deserves the death penalty, deserves to be executed. However, if you want to go and look a little deeper, you'll see that the Torah's call for the death penalty is one that is not so clear. Because if you just read Pshuto Shamikra, a verse as it seems... That is just an oversimplification. If you study the Torah, the traditional way, not just the written Torah, but as it is accompanied with Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah, that interprets and explains it, then we understand from the oral Torah, which was originally transmitted orally, Moshe Kibbal Torah Messinai, right? Moses receives the Torah from Sinai. And then a Masara Yeshua, I teach it over to Joshua, the Yeshua Liskanim, and Joshua to the elders, Uskanim Asura and they taught it from their generation to the next. And it was eventually transcribed in the Mishnah, which is written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi around the year 200 of the Common Era, 1800 years ago. And it was elucidated further in the Talmud over the next couple of hundred years. And in the Jewish context, no practical conclusions are actually drawn from the biblical text alone without reading it through the oral Torah. And indeed, when you study the Mishnah and the Talmud, and later Maimonides and the Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, we see how it's formulated into practical application. So before we extrapolate any practical instructions from the biblical death penalty as it's transcribed in this week's Torah portion, we have to understand it from the oral law as well. And so then, we'll have a much better position to understand what guidance the Torah actually gives us concerning the death penalty and to apply it in the modern context, to understand how it's actually implemented. If you read the oral law, if you read the Talmud and the Mishnah, you understand there are actually tremendous restrictions. There's a very high standard in order to practically implement the death penalty. 
And so I want to share with you some of the main categories of those restrictions, of the standards, in order for that to be implemented. What standard of evidence does the Torah require in order to convict a suspected murderer and actually sentence them to death? It's not so simple. In fact, let me tell you, in the modern context, CCTV is not sufficient. Why? Because the first thing we are told is that a court depends on eyewitness testimony. That means two valid kosher witnesses. And you have to study the Talmud to understand what is a valid kosher witness. A gambler, a thief, lose their chance of being valid kosher witnesses. Of course, there are many other qualifications. On top of that, the witnesses are not allowed to be related to any, to the victim, or to the culprit, or to each other. And they had to have actually seen the murder itself or whatever incident they are testifying against. And there are many other requirements. For example, they had to have seen it. And then, no matter how convincing and overwhelming the circumstances of what they've seen, they had to actually seen the incident itself. And once they've seen it, they actually have to, before, well, they have to warn the individual who they've seen. And then he has to listen to their warning and acknowledge their warning. And still he has to commit the offense. And only then they report it to the Basin. And the Basin cross-examines them and interrogates them and investigates. And if any discrepancies are found, then their testimony is ruled inadmissible. And there's a lot of details to that that I'm oversimplifying to you. But the point is the Torah has many practical restrictions on the use of the death penalty. And in a capital case, the only evidence that we will accept is eyewitness testimony, as I described, where they warned the witnesses, where the witnesses warned the individual. Not only that, as you study the Mishnah, then the based in the court of Jewish law are going to warn the witnesses themselves. And there's very, very strict laws relating to the warning and then the the acknowledgement and acceptance as well as the individual committing the crime. So as you understand, there are choo, so many standards, restrictions, where you have requiring proof that the murderer actually committed the crime that he allegedly is convicted of. And then the judges warn the witnesses about perjury, about false testimony. So with all these details where the witnesses are required to go through such a high standard to prevent any errors of judgment, as Maimonides puts it in his words, the Torah can't live with the possibility of a court making any kind of mistake, relying on any kind of inconclusive evidence. We don't rely on circumstantial evidence that of the details. It has to be clear, very clear, that the witnesses actually saw the event. In Maimonides' words, it's better that even a thousand guilty people be exonerated than to someday execute even one single innocent person. And the logic behind the high standard of Jewish law is because we place infinite value on human life. And when we're back, we're going to discuss the Torah, the Torah's perspective on to what extremes we go to be willing to ensure that no innocent person is ever convicted of a crime 
that they didn't commit and to then have to go through execution. And what risks we're willing to take for that. We'll be right back. Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. So, we've been talking about the Torah's high standards of, of life, and therefore how difficult it is to actually execute someone who was convicted of a crime because of our tremendous infinite value of human life. And the Torah therefore considers it actually preferable that even a thousand guilty people to be exonerated, to be released from, maybe not released from incarceration, but not to be executed, than one innocent person to lose their life. And this strict standard basically made it very difficult for anyone to be executed because of the cross-examination, the investigation, the interrogations, the qualifications of the witnesses, all of the details involved, which of course we just described in summary. And in fact, this leads a Mishnah, one of the great Mishnahs in Tractate Makos to say, a Sanhedrin, a Jewish court that executes once in seven years is called Chablanis, which means a destructive based in. Okay, there's another opinion you might be more familiar with. Rabbi Elizabeth Nazario says once in 70 years. However, there's a general rule that a Stam Mishnah, a Mishnah that has no author, that teaching is the ruling that we follow. But regardless, whether it's once in seven years or 70 years, it seems that they are considered a destructive court of law. Now, of course, the Talmud discusses this at great length and says every case was judged in its own merits and the courts had to make their rulings on a basis of each particular case by case on the details involved. But the Mishnah is telling us a very important point, that considering the standards and the procedures that were needed to be fulfilled to arrive at the conclusion to convict somebody of the death penalty, if you're executing more than once in seven years, on average, then this is a sign that something is probably wrong with that court's procedures. And you gotta, you gotta review your procedures. You gotta see what are you doing wrong. So, in fact, to complicate it a little more, let me add the continuation of that Mishnah to you, where Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say that if they were members of that base, then they said nobody would ever be executed. And their colleague, you're probably familiar with all these guys from the Haggadah, Rabbi Shimon and Gamliel says, well, you would have caused murder to proliferate. That's a fascinating statement in the Talmud. Because what does this mean that they would ensure that the death penalty would actually never even be implemented? How is that possible? What's the purpose? Now, one answer that's discussed is that the Torah, they, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfan say, ideally, Ideally, you want your children to be well-behaved. You want that you should never have to punish your children, right? If you're a perfect parent, somehow your children will be angels and you'll never ever have to punish them. It is only a threat that if they misbehave, if they go out of line, then you're going to have to put them in timeout or whatever other methods of corporal punishment you use for your children. Well, 
when the Torah teaches us that every human life is of infinite value and that we each have our unique, indispensable mission, our divine mission to fulfill in this world, well then, what does it mean that the Torah says a murderer or any of the other capital criminals should receive the death penalty? According to Rabbi Akiva, in the ideal world, it is only a threat. It's some form of education, like a teacher or a parent would wish that they never actually have to enforce the rules and apply the consequences. But we know that reality is a little different, that unfortunately sometimes we have to enforce the rule because if you don't give anyone tickets for speeding, then everybody will be speeding. And unfortunately, it's going to lead to accidents, to casualties on the road. So based on what we've been saying how would we apply the Torah law to modern times? If this country were to implement the death penalty, or in the United States where I come from, can the U.S., which is based on the legal system there, the founding fathers tried to base it on Judeo-Christian values, if they are indeed basing it on the Judeo values of the Torah, then practically speaking, would they would it be possible to ever convict somebody of the death penalty? Firstly, where you're getting the Torah's qualifications of witnesses to testify, and then the cross-examinations and the possibility. Even DNA is not admissible um, evidence for convicting anybody because you don't have two qualified witnesses who actually saw the incident without just gathering what we call circumstantial evidence based on what they see and putting the pieces of the puzzle together that they're able to to draw a conclusion that indeed this person is guilty of that particular crime. So indeed, due to the Torah's high standard to prove one's guilt, practical use of the death penalty in the past was quite rare. As the Talmud said, once in seven years was already considered too much. And it would be virtually impossible to implement it in modern times as well. And of course we see here, this is the Torah's tremendous value of human life. Not to say that a murderer deserves to get away, to be let, to let go, and to get off easy for a heinous crime that they've committed. Rather, because we don't want an innocent person to ever be executed. Therefore, we hold such a high standard in the conviction process. And based on this, Torah law would not really seem to support the death penalty in the modern context. Now, the Torah's laws concerning the death penalty teach us this the infinite value of human life and how careful we ought to be. And as I told you the case before, that the case of Mr. Willingham, who it seems based on evidence that came out after his execution that it's very possible that perhaps he was an innocent person who was executed on false evidence. Now, of course, you could say it's rare and it's not common, but indeed, that's a good enough reason why not to implement the death penalty, whether here or abroad. And when we come back, we'll look for a moment at the Torah's emergency law clause, which allows the death penalty to be implemented in certain rare cases, even without that high standard of evidence 
that is required by Torah law. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. And we're back. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivman, and we're talking today about capital punishment as it's described in this week's Torah portion. And we concluded before... Maimonides puts it in these words that it's better a thousand guilty people be exonerated than to someday execute even one innocent person. Of course, these words truly ring noble as an idea. But the question is, are they practical? Is it really better to let a thousand suspected killers roam free because the cases against them aren't a hundred percent all right? And there was a professor who asked this question. He says, better for whom? That's his question. Better for whom? Now, if you think about it, for individuals, the suspected murderer, the court judging him, it's better that many guilty people escape punishment rather than to run the risk of taking one is one innocent life. That's Maimonides' idea. And it's because if the suspect is indeed innocent, as it seems in the case with Mr. Willingham, then executing this one individual is an immeasurable tragedy for the suspect, for their family, for the court that judged him. But if we evaluate the question from the other angle, from the perspective of society as a whole, then it's much more damaging to let a thousand suspected murderers. Could you imagine? That's what Israel did in the Gilad Shalit case. You let a thousand terrorists out of jail for one innocent individual. And so it seems from the Torah's theory that that is the case. The Torah's theory of punishment is not focused on societal benefit. It is focused on the individual, on the soul of that one person who is suspected of committing whatever crime it is. And from this perspective, indeed, this idea that Maimonides teaches of letting a thousand criminals out to save one innocent person seems to be justified. Now, of course, the Torah wants us to protect society as well. We cannot ignore the needs of society. And in fact, the Mishnah tells us that we pray for our government, even if it's not a good government. Why? Because without it, we would have anarchy. What is, <laughs> what's the alternative? Even a bad government is better than no government. So we do have to protect society. And how do we balance that? So the Torah certainly empowers the courts to act in society's best interest, not to let murderers roam the streets freely. And in that case, sometimes, even at the expense of individuals, maybe that means incarceration, we're not going to let people who are a menace to society, who commit such a ghast crimes, to just walk the streets freely. And so the Torah systems of punishment, even though it doesn't include incarceration, we do say when necessary to protect society, there is what we call emergency law clause, where we allow the courts, Jewish courts, to implement, whether it's imprisonment, a holding cell for crazy people, or to implement the death penalty under certain circumstances. And that, of course, is a matter that has to be decided by the based in, by the court of law, when that standard, when that emergency law is to be implemented. And in history, we find there were certain cases that were necessary that Jewish courts of law have implemented. That, that means even when they didn't use that high standard 
of evidence under those unique circumstances if it was necessary. And if the, if it was compelling strong evidence against a particular person, even if it wasn't 100% certain, then the Bastins actually implemented even the death penalty under certain requirements, what they called the need of the time, perhaps to create a deterrence, to prevent others from committing terrible crimes. Generally, we were talking about murder, not the other violations, which usually fit into the theme of idolatry or adultery or certain transgressions of the laws of Shabbos. But that was only in certain, certain circumstances. So what practical guidance might Jewish law give us regarding capital punishment today? If we go back to the verses in this week's Torah portion, on the one hand, we want compassion. Even when a person is executed, it has to be done compassionately. It cannot be done in a ruthless way. The Torah says, if a man is to be hanged for their crime, then their body is to be buried before night. We don't leave them hanging overnight. So just to summarize, the Torah rejects that it's immoral to execute someone. We cannot say it's immoral because the Torah is the epitome of morals, of ethics, of our values. And therefore, from a definitive position of Jewish law, the death penalty, capital punishment, is certainly valid. Obviously, if you've been listening today, under strict Torah law, it would be practically impossible to actually sentence anyone to death in modern times based on the Torah's high standards, even though we did discuss certain emergency law when necessary to be implemented. But beyond the formal laws, the most basic message that the Torah has to teach us about this idea of capital punishment is its focus on how holy and infinitely valuable every human life is. If you are born, it's God's message to you that you matter. You are indispensable to God's plan. And this is something that needs to be internalized, whether in the legal system and our own minds, to see the value of every human being. And if we could recognize and put that at the forefront of our minds, then we realize that Torah's tremendous value to human life, that is the underlying theme of this discussion. Next week, please God, as it is an important month in the calendar. I don't know if you are familiar, but tomorrow we begin a new month, Rosh Chodesh. Okay, it's not Rosh Chodesh Adar yet. That's only next week, but February is a month that is dedicated globally as Jewish Disability and Inclusiveness Month, Awareness Month. And therefore, we at Chabad House and many other organizations around the world are dedicating next Shabbos, the portion of Teruma, to inclusion awareness. How to perhaps do things to be aware more of those around us, to pay more attention, to be more sensitive and caring to the needs of those who perhaps might not be the same as ourselves. And so next week, please God, I will talk about some ideas on how we could be more inclusive, whether it's at our shuls or at our Shabbos tables, with the menu we serve, with sensitivity in the way we speak to others and to speak about others. So stay tuned next week. Join us right here on Soul to Soul and find out what your shul's doing to be a little bit more inclusive on this very special Shabbos of inclusion next week where this project has been launched called Shabbat Together. And it's dedicated to 
creating more awareness, educating people more about the sensitivities of others. Until then, my friends, I wish you a most enjoyable Shabbos. Hope we gave you some thoughts to ponder. And when you're sitting at the Shear and Shul and you're reviewing the Parsha, think about the literal understanding of the portion and think about the Torah's cure for every human being. And we'll continue these discussions. Please, God, next week, same time, same place, right here only on Soul to Soul on 101.9 Chai FM. And, of course, you're invited to join us for the live discussion, which takes place every Wednesday morning and evening at Chabad House, not Wednesday mornings at 945, and Santin Central Shul, Kershkinison County Center, at 7.15 p.m. Until then... Carpe diem sees the day and stay tuned for fresh thinking up next right after the news right here.